Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor, and I'm a bodybuilder. Hello, Rob Fortress Fortney here, former editor of Muscle Mega International, former competitive bodybuilder and powerlifter. And this is Phil Stevens here. I'm the founder of LiftForHope.org, StrikeGuild.com, and I'm a professional powerlifter and Highland Games athlete, and I can no longer walk due to soreness. And he's also pissing uh, urine, the uh, iced tea, right? Color iced tea. tea. Yeah. Right. Yeah, ra- rhabdomyolysis, not not recommended. <laughs> All right. Well, you got to do what you got to do, I guess. So. <laughs> you made me choke on my oh, coffee. <laughs> <laughs> it's going south already. Yeah. Luckily, we have a guest who's, who's an old buddy. Uh, our guest today is, is Dr. Tim Ziegenfuss, and I'm going to let him introduce himself uh, in just a minute. I, I, I feel um, like I should... Share a quick news blurb, though. Uh, one of our contributors, Sean Casey, uh, sent us an interesting uh, news blurb from Science Daily, and it's entitled uh, "Eggs Antioxidant Properties May Help Prevent Heart Disease and Cancer." Uh, so this is from j- just July 6, 2011. That's why I like I love these guys. They're very current. But it says one of nature's most perfect foods may even be better for us than previously thought. Those eggs are, uh, well, well, they're well known to be an excellent source of proteins, lipids, vitamins, and minerals. Researchers at the University of Alberta recently discovered they also contain antioxidant properties, which helps in the prevention of cardiovascular disease and cancer. And I'll just go to the highlight here. After analyzing the properties, the researchers determined that two egg yolks in their raw state have almost twice as many antioxidant properties as an apple and about the same as a half a serving of cranberries. So that's kicking. Uh, however, when the eggs were fried or boiled, antioxidant properties were reduced by about half uh, and a little more than half if the legs, eggs were cooked in a microwave. So I can't imagine making eggs in a microwave. That seems like you end up with rubber. I don't know. But So I don't know. Fortress, when you make eggs, do you, do you smash them out or do you leave the yolk sort of uh, sunny side up and sort of raw? Um, I usually just... Uh Kind of make a halfway's omelet. I mean, I've, I change it all the time because, as you know, I've, I eat eggs every morning and a half for like 20 years. But um, typically, I'll have maybe two or three yolks per six. Um, I've actually, I'll, I'm sorry. I was just going to add in something on the. Uh, yeah, and I'll just uh, kind of scramble them up a bit or something like that. Yeah. On that topic, though, I mean, I think I've heard. There was that deal going around for a while that the egg whites are actually more, the, the protein was more available if it was cooked, and the yolk it wasn't. So, I mean, I, a lot of people, and I tried it, um, would like scramble your egg whites and then put that in a bowl while they're still hot and then just put your yolks on it. You know, I tried that, and it was actually pretty good. Yeah, I kind of do that. I, I make, I'll make over easy eggs and sort of smash out the yolks almost like yeah. a, a little uh, sauce, hollandaise type sauce or yeah, something. Exactly. And I guess that's, that sounds like a good thing. What about you, Tim? Do you, do you eat a lot of eggs these days? Oh, daily. Yeah, yeah, daily. I'm off the old, you know, couple of eggs a week thing. Uh, I would 
you know, stopped that nonsense about 10 years ago probably. And I do, uh, I'm probably a two-to-one guy or a three-to-one guy, you know, three, three egg whites for every one yolk. But then again, I, my pipes are so clean, I've never had a, I've never had a total cholesterol value over 140. So, uh, or an LDL value over about 70. So I, you know, I, I'm a aberration in that when it comes to eggs, I think, and cholesterol. So even though the, the, the relationship is, of course, tenuous at best. So Right. That's right. It. Yeah. It's, it's, so, yeah, you still eat the way we, we used to. And I actually do a lot, too. I'll, I, I'm a little bit more loose. I might have three or four whole eggs in the morning, you know, with, with an equal number of egg whites. I almost go 50-50 now. And I've had people say, why do you use egg whites at all? I'm like, well, on some level, it's just a lot of fat calories. And, you know, I'm not sure I just want to have that much all at once with breakfast. I don't know, you know. Sure. So sure. not there's anything. There's a flavor issue for me as well, you know. It's true. Yeah, it, that's true. Yeah. Anyway, okay, well, we're listening to Dr. Tim Ziegenfuss, everybody. And, Tim, just maybe give everybody a rundown of who you are first and then, uh, you know, your origins in nutrition and resistance training. Sure, yeah. First and foremost, uh, I'm the guy that probably, one of the few guys that has a lot of dirt on uh, on, Lonnie, on Dr. Lonnie Lowry, so that's the most important thing to remember. Because we were in grad school together for a number of years at Kent State, studying under Pete Lemon, so uh, that's the first thing. But um, I guess, uh, you know, uh, currently I, um, uh, I'm the CSO for Biotest, so I help uh, uh, with a bunch of really smart guys over there, both on the science end and the marketing end. I help sort of steer the ship in certain directions from a formulation standpoint and, and so on. Um, I also am the, I have my own lab that actually does safety and efficacy testing for, uh, for anyone in the nutraceutical and supplement industry. It's, uh, it's called the Center for Applied Health Sciences. Um, and uh, in its various forms, uh, that lab is actually, well, that sort of dates back to my origins uh, in, in this industry, um, date back to probably 2000. But uh, uh, as, as the name goes, that lab has been in existence for probably three years. Um, what else do I do? I used to write for a bunch of magazines, but they're all going down in a ball of flames, it seems, nowadays. So that sort of dried up a little bit. I used to write a little bit for Flax. I used to write for M&F. I wrote for GNC's mag for a while, Vitamin Shop's mag for a while. Um, so like, like like a lot of us, I think, nowadays, uh, you know, a lot of balls in the air in case one drops. Right. Uh, well, you know, I feel almost guilty because I, we've lamented the loss of paper magazines ourselves here on the podcast, but what are we doing? We're using electronic media, you know, that's right. <laughs> because you can publish for free. <laughs> that's right. So, that's right. you know... Of yeah, course, it's a great way. I mean, there's no way to, as as we all know, there's there's no way to stay cutting edge uh, when it's in print. You know, you got to be on the web, uh, either you know written or you know, doing video or, or podcast. So yeah, it's. I, I, that said, though, I don't think paper is going to go away. I think people still. I still like to read things. I I, I catch details on the written word better than I do uh, on a screen or verbally. I still do that. So yeah. when I need to review something and really dig in, man, I print it out. I need to, I need you know, to we on. might be we might be old farts in that regard because I asked my students in the spring. I was, I was teaching a class called Medical Aspects of Exercise, and I said, "How many people download the MP3 lectures?" You know, because you know how students used to set recorders up front. Well, now I just do it for them and I put it online, and everybody raised their hand, or you know, let's say ninety-five percent of people raised their hand. They actually listen to that stuff later, but. Later, I, I, through the bookstore, I was surprised at how many people bought the book, and something like 11 out of 50 bought the book. Um, now, it's partly because I, you know, I teach from, I give exams based on my slides, but the point being is, 
they're clearly leaning toward the media, electronic media, you know what I mean? And they're not even buying the books. And on some level, that just makes me sad. I wonder if that's just for your class because uh, it's the way you teach or if it's all, all, all courses. Oh, no, I think it's I think it's both. But, yeah, there was actually a – I got an interesting email I have to forward to you from a, a friend and a colleague a couple of months ago. And it said – what did it say? Why do we even lecture in person anymore? And it was a lot about this whole idea of, you know, lecturers are putting their stuff online, you know, their, their PowerPoint and their MP3 or a combination of the two. And I don't know. I think classrooms are kind of changing. I don't know. We'll see. But anyway, no, I agree about that. But let's get back to you. So uh, not to sort of talk it up too much, but so what kind of services do you do in your lab for people? Do you do – are we talking about, like, um, meeting label claims or um, – yeah, yeah, we do. Actually, we've got a pretty wide spectrum, you know, of services. I would say about 90% of our business, though, is actually testing products. So, uh, you know, we just we just got done doing a study on a – I can't say anything other than it's sort of a, one of the quintessential uh, uh, sports drinks that are out there. So we just got done doing a, a big project for them. We do – you know, we've done uh, – I mean, I could name probably a dozen different companies that we do a lot of pilot work for, so products that may not ever come to market. Um, lately, though, we've been doing finished product research, but we do other stuff as well. We have uh, we have some, um, as you know, Lonnie, in, in an exercise physiology lab, there are certain tools that you you can measure uh, and try to uh, help athletes be better athletes. And so that's and that's really how I got into exercise in the first place. Um, and I was into a lot of sports when I was younger, but I was never really good enough to compete at you know the regional level. Yeah, but never beyond that. So I, when I was a junior in college uh, as an undergrad, I, I took my first ex phys class, and I thought, man, if I knew what that guy knew while I was uh, still in high school, maybe I could have really been something. And uh, so that's, I guess, for own my, my own selfish reasons, that's what started me off in the field of, of exercise phys. And then a nutritional spin just came later when I realized it was necessary and actually critical for you know maximizing performance. You know, genetics, training, nutrition, those sort of three wheels on a tricycle if you want to do it that way. Yeah. Um, but no, the lab also does work with some athletes. So we have, uh, we work with some athletes in the NFL, uh, the NHL. We have some MMA guys that we work with currently. Um, so trying to sort of tweak their, we can't really change their, their, their training programs very much because their coaches would snap our necks. You know, that's not our purview. Right. But we, uh, we, we do change their approach to diet and we do fill in the gaps with dietary supplements. So we, we offer some, fairly unique testing with regard to, to that. So some blood work, for example, to assess whether or not there are deficiencies or holes in their diet, and that's where we really start our, you know, our, our supplement plan. Right. We were just talking to Dave Tate about that a little bit last week, about how, yeah, looking at blood work and get, getting some of that objective data. I don't know if right. you feel this way, but one of the things that I always felt like doing sports nutrition at the university level, at least, was, you know, because what you said about coaches you know, you have to have this sort of agreement with the coach that you know you're not going to really undermine what he's doing, even even no if you, even if he's not giving them enough recovery time or whatever it is, or training them into rhabdomyolysis, like we were right, joking right. with Bill. But you know, where they do that was at Iowa. They, uh, yeah, remember we were talking about that. But anyway, so it's it almost becomes the nutrition uh, perspective in supplementation becomes like damage control. You know, where you let the coach just run wild with them, and you're just trying to do damage control in a way. Well, there's no, there's no doubt that uh, you know your your whole diet program and your your should help you recover from your your training. So, you know, you need to work closely with those coaches, um, not to change what they do because I think that's probably a mistake. 
Right. Uh, well, it may not be a mistake. It may be the right thing, but you can't come in there, obviously, no. and tell them what to do. So Agreed. Yeah. Yep. You know, but, uh, but for example, when we worked with um, some of the NFL players, whatever we would do, whatever recommendation, recommendations we would make, they would be um, sent to right on down the line, the athletic trainer, the, uh, the strength coach, and the head coach. Everybody knew. Everybody knew what we were doing and, and why we were doing it. Uh, that way there was no, well, what the hell are you doing telling the athlete to eat, you know, 40% carbs, you know, uh, post-exercise when he needs to, you know, so on and so on. So everything was very carefully documented, um, both for uh, logistical reasons but as also legal reasons. I mean, really, you're talking oh, yeah. about million-dollar athletes here. So we don't want anybody to point the finger and go, aha, yeah, he pulled the hammy because of you guys. Right. Well, I'll tell you what, too. That's why, I mean, like in a clinical setting, you know, the medical record that a dietitian would make notes in, that's a legal document. Make no mistake. It's it's for proper care, sure, but that's also a legal document and exactly for the reason that you're pointing out there. So, yeah. Right. Yep. Right. Okay, so now I know you had a martial arts background, too, and I'm not going to dig up any dirt on you either. <laughs> but, so you, <laughs> yeah. you, you've got, what, martial arts, uh, resistance training. Is there anything yeah, else? Yeah, I still, yeah, skiing, you know, lots of skiing. I was a competitor. Oh, skiing, skier, right, younger, yeah. So, and I still do some MMA now. Uh, it was mostly Taekwondo when I was younger, but uh, I still do that. Um, gosh, I played a little bit of football in high school. I, I did. I was one of those kids who played lots of sports, but I, I think my best, in, honest, in all honesty, my, I was best at martial arts. You know, I, I love competing and sparring in Taekwondo and, and, uh, and, um, uh, and skiing. I was a competitive uh, skier. And, uh, but then, uh, you know, downhill, to, right? Downhill skiing. Downhill, yeah, downhill. Yeah. So, uh, but, you know, unless you're on the east, you know, in the New England area, you're out west, uh, you know, you're not really going to turn a whole lot of heads, uh, in, uh, the Poconos where I grew up in PA, um, or certainly in Ohio where I'm living now. But, um, yeah, but now my training is about 95% weight room. So, uh, with 5% other stuff. Right. So. Well, before we go to break, let's just ask you about that a little bit. So what kind of training are you doing now? It, it's fun for me to ask some of the, you know, we've had some doc students from, you know, like Stu Phillips' lab on. And, and I, even though some of these guys, they're obviously not competitive bodybuilders or powerlifters, it's fun to hear what the smart guys are doing in the gym. So Right, um, right, 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 right now my splits, my, my splits vary. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll switch back and forth between a, a four-day-a-week, upper-lower, upper-lower split um, uh, to a actually to a whole body split, you know, three days a week, and then my GPP in between on my off days. So, uh, but, uh, like, and I train my upper and lower bodies a little di- a little differently now because I actually had two discs uh, bulge on me about oh. a year and a half ago during deadlift. Yeah, you know, I'm sa- this makes me sad. Everybody guy. I talk to, you know, <laughs> like, you, you start getting to your 40s and, and, God, you're just falling apart. But you know what Danny John said once, he said, Oh, you just pull over, you get the repair, you get back in the race, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I, I'm lucky to have met a guy. Um, actually, now he's a he's he's part he's a business partner of mine. His name's Dr. Hector Lopez, and you know uh, you know Hector. Yeah. He's a great spine and sports medicine specialist out of New Jersey, and he's a guy who actually fixed my back non-surgically with some uh, with some prolotherapy and some injections. Um, but uh, but I still got to be careful the way I train lower body. I can't train it the way I used to. But I but I am doing currently like. Uh, the Wendler's 531 for upper body, uh, and then for lower body, I do some, uh, you know, standard bodybuilding stuff, and I push the prowler twice a week. Mm-hmm. So um, that's that's in a nutshell, that's what I do. What, what are you trying? Are you trying to gain or um, just become as you know as fit as possible, like from a general, you know, uh, 
like strength, flexibility, cardiovascular perspective, or, or what's the goal then? Yeah, you know, the goal now is different. And I still want to be this, like you said, you hit your 40s and you see these, you know, these young punks come in the weight room and they're doing everything wrong, but they seem to be making gains every week. And so, you know, I'm trying to hang with them. That's part of the reason why, you know, my back, <laughs> part of the reason why the two discs went in my back a year and a half ago or whatever is because I was, you know, trying to hang with the young bucks. But, uh, no, my goal, you know, my training had to change because of that. I mean, I have to spend more time now on prehab and mobility. Um, um, than I did ever before. I mean, my warm-up used to be the exercise I was doing for lightweight. That used to be my warm-ups. Now it's not that at all. You know, it's warm-ups, it's prehab movements, it's mobility movements, um, and then uh, and then it's lightweights. With the, so my workouts have gotten longer, even though I'm doing less a less volume of work probably. But the goal is, yeah, to stay strong as strong as I can, as flexible as I can. And really, as, as fit as I can, because as you know, I have five. You know, I have five uh, kids that I need to run around after. So, uh, you know, I <laughs> um, I have to be able to do a little bit of everything. <laughs> You're biologically prolific. <laughs> oh, man, I'll say something or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you know what? That's evolutionary fitness, man. Just roll with it. That's right. That's right. Okay. All right. I'll tell you what. We're gonna uh, take a break, and then I was a little remiss in in, in sharing this at the beginning, but then we're gonna come back, and we're gonna. Pick Tim's brain about a couple of things. Uh, one, uh, Dr. Zickenfoos just gave a talk on uh, adipokines uh, out in Las Vegas. And again, we've said this many times in the podcast, but one of the great things about podcasts, like you said earlier, Tim, is the timeliness. So, you know, you can share some highlights from that. Maybe, you know, this is an event that just happened. And, you know, not, a, not all our listeners go to these kinds of things. So we'll get a little bit of geekery on that, on body fat. We'll learn why body fat is alive, uh, as you said. And then we'll talk a little bit maybe about the supplement industry or any kind of um, projects or uh, products that you know that are coming down the pipeline, at least whatever you, you, know, you feel uh, comfortable sharing. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow... Uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact uh, follow us in other media and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Hello, everybody. Phil Stevens here for IronRadio.org, StrengthGuild.com, and ChadAches.com to tell you about the Strength Refined Seminar with myself, Phil Stevens, and Chad Aches. 
Saturday, September 24, 2011, CrossFit Sin City, Las Vegas, Nevada. Strength Refined is a one-day course in refining your technique and proficiency in the squat, the bench, and the deadlift. It's going to be a long day. We'll squat, we'll bench, we'll deadlift, we'll do a Q&A, and then we're going to go heavy and go eat. For more information, go to www.strengthguild.com, click on the blog, go to meets and seminars, click on the Strength Refined seminar, and it's all there. Hope to see you there. Okay, welcome back, everybody. This is Lonnie Lowry. Uh, Fortress is on and Phil is on, and we are talking to Dr. Tim Ziegenfuss, who's an exercise physiologist and sports nutrition expert. Uh, and we're going to talk about a couple of things in our discussion today. And the first thing I just wanted to touch on before I really forget is um, maybe a little bit of education from Dr. Z here on uh, why body fat is alive, because that was the title of a talk that he just gave in Las Vegas. And, Tim, if you could just maybe share with listeners what you mean by that. Sure, yeah. The, uh, you know, the, the idea that body fat is an endocrine organ is actually not a new one. I mean, it, it's been around for about uh, almost 10 years now, I think, uh, in, the liter- in the scientific literature. And so, uh, you know, it, it, the old-time way to look at body fat was, you know, it sort of just sat there and made you ugly, and it was a depot for, ex, you know, for excess calories. But it wasn't really, didn't really do anything. Um, biologically, of course, very important because it can pack away more than, you know, twice the energy as uh, carbs or protein per gram. Um, but, uh, but other than that, it just sort of sat around during periods of uh, famine so that we wouldn't, uh, you know, uh, peel off too much uh, lean mass. Like a gas um, tank. Like a gas tank. Sure, it's a gas tank, right. Yeah. So, but, but, but now scientists are finding out that um, actually fat, adipose tissue, releases hormones, dozens and dozens and dozens of different kinds of hormones, some of which do good things for the body, and some of which do bad things for the body. So, um, for example, uh, everyone has heard of leptin. Leptin is a hormone that was made pretty popular, at, at least in rodents. It's, it's one of those appetite-controlling hormones. So you eat, there's a, leptin is released, and it's thought to signal the brain to, to, to tell you to stop eating. Well, uh, we thought, uh, the scientists thought and the physicians thought, that if we could uh, you know, treat people with leptin or somehow correct leptin levels, that uh, we could sort of cure, for lack of a better word, human obesity. And it didn't really work because it turns out that a lot of people are leptin-resistant for whatever reason, and so leptin is sort of out there in, in left field. But that's the original adipokine. Um, there, there are others, and, uh, and basically I think what happens personally, from my read of the literature, what happens is from a long-term uh, exposure to either um, a poor diet or a lack of physical activity um, or maybe even environmental uh, influences, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, toxins in foods or toxins from your, in the air or in the water or so on, um, it really sort of, um, uh, it, it, it makes your fat cells sick. It makes it so they can't communicate properly chemically through the release of hormones with uh, muscle cells, with the liver, and with the brain to coordinate an overall sort of uh, revolving door where, the, uh, the fatty, you know, fat cells are supposed to store calories, but also release them very easily. And so, uh, what happens, I think, is some people get better at storing than they do at releasing. And so, I call, I, I'd like to, uh, I call that, you know, it's a sick fat cell. And, and um, so, I've been busy over the last few years, about six years actually, trying to find ways to fix fat cells so that they'll work better, um, so that uh, fat cells don't release pro-inflammatory um, hormones. That actually cause uh, you know systemic inflammation and and uh, and, and uh, lead to 
uh, or a link to chronic diseases like type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease and osteopenia and so on and so on. So right. that's it in a nutshell. And, so um, if I can, because I, I know listeners will be thinking this too, um, so primary nutritional means to do that, would it be your fat choices and maybe antioxidant phytochemical choices, like what kind of fruits and vegetables you eat or supplements along those lines? Right, yeah, the, the idea is that there, there are, well, first of all, it's an ongoing process trying to figure out, you know, what can influence those fat cells in a positive way, right? And so what we know so far is that there, uh, there are, yes, there are certain spices, there are certain um, components from, uh, from, from fatty acids, and, uh, and most, uh, probably most well-studied is there are certain anthocyanins that can positively impact the release of these adipokines. So, that's so we're talking work. about the blue stuff and blueberries. Yeah, the blue stuff and blueberries. There's there's a specific pigment called uh, you know C, uh, C3G or cyanamide three glucoside, and and that's one that uh, that we've been focusing on over at Biotest to try to to try to get in a in a purified form, um, and then provide uh, on a uh, sort of a on a beta test, and then a pilot test, and then a full blown, and, and so on. And, and and thus far, we've, I mean, uh, it, it's worked out. Uh, to say it's worked out better than I ever had hoped would be a tremendous understatement. I, I really didn't expect it to the people that have results this good, but uh, and that's all pretty much I'm going to say because I don't want to put my foot in my mouth. But so far, yeah. double you know flying double thumbs up. So on, yeah. on that regard, but there are certainly potentially others uh, other ingredients out there that could do the same thing. I think we're you know we're excited because we've actually found something that. It, that it appears can mitigate some of this stuff and, and help heal fat cells. So, so we either the idea is that you know maybe you don't even need to take this stuff uh, daily. Maybe you just you fix your fat cells and you're good for a few months or for right. a half a year. Or Actually, whatever. that makes me think about some of the early fatty acid uh, investigations where they would feed people omega three fats, you know EPA, DHA, and it would actually reduce like glucose uptake in, in adipocytes and fat cells, sure. but enhance it in muscle tissue. And I, I that I, is. If you can do that, that's key. Yep, that is. Yeah, key. in fact, one of the, I'm working on an article right now about uh, partitioning or repartitioning. And you know what? I had never really given it a lot of um, credence before. I mean, you can sometimes see simultaneous muscle gain and fat loss in beginners, as you know. But um, I was when I was in D.C., there was a fascinating talk uh, from one of the Canadian labs. Go figure. And they were literally showing these guys gaining lean mass on calorie-reduced diets. And I thought, my God, you know, I mean, you know how you and I used to sort of be, you know, skeptical, roll our eyes a little bit at the low-calorie weight gainers and stuff like sure, that. Sure, well, sure, sure. Holy crap, these guys were literally showing guys gaining muscle mass. And, you know, listeners, if, you, if you're not familiar, it takes somewhere around 2,800 calories to knit together a pound of muscle. And if you can get your body fat to supply that energy, holy crap, right? And I think that's kind of what Dr. Z is talking about right now. You know, if we can somehow partition nutrients into muscle or even in the best case scenario, dip into our fat stores to fuel the protein synthesis in muscle, uh, you know, again, if this is not an everyday occurrence, I don't want people to think it is because I'm actually, I'm still a fan of, you know, big eating in the off season, but... Uh, to think that this is physiologically real, it just opens up big doors, you know. And I never, like again, we're, I'm sitting there in Washington D.C. listening to world premier researchers talk about partitioning uh, in a very positive light. So that was uh, that was pretty fascinating stuff. So when you say you're very excited about some of the, uh, 
you know, like the Indigo 3G type stuff. Uh, you know, this talk wasn't about phytochemicals like that, but I really think there's there's more to this repartitioning thing than maybe we, you know, gave it credit for five or ten years ago. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And, uh, you know, it, it sort of, uh, you know, all the pieces sort of fit together when I looked at, you know, uh, the research and said, okay, so, you know, uh, fruits are good for you, vegetables are good for you, you know, uh, some of these new super fruits, you know, the acai and uh, and goji and all and on and on and on. And then if you look in the, if if you look to see what some of their, uh, you know, their actual chemical makeup is, there seemed to be that common thread of these anthocyanins. And, and uh, but there was no real good source of it. So that was, that was where sort of the light bulb went on for us. And that was uh, like I said six years ago. And we've been we're honestly we've been working ever since then to try to source it out. And just recently it sort of worked out. But. Yeah, the, the whole idea of gaining lean mass uh, on a, quote, hypoenergetic or a hypocaloric diet, that's so far, and I mean, it completely disagrees with the first law of thermodynamics, and you could go in the opposite way and say, well, how are you going to lose weight if you're, you know what I mean, you, you can't even, you, you can't gain weight if you don't eat more calories than you expend, and you can't uh, lose weight if you don't do the opposite, but really, we're finding that that's not true, it's just not true. Right, it's well, it's not true. true, you know, I've given this some thought, it's, it's not true if you look at someone... Uh, a, a snapshot in time, like you get somebody on a metabolic card, or you know, you look at something as a snapshot, or you do their their diet logs and you compare that with their estimated RMR from a morning, you know, measurement or something. But I think the laws of thermodynamics, if you look deeply, they do hold. It just feels like they don't because on a life free living environment kind of thing, it looks like indeed they're eating less calories than they're, um, you know. Uh, burning or something but well that yeah that you know what I mean? because one me- of, metabolism is so dynamic it's yeah, gonna go that, up that and, and down. one other thing that and one other thing and you hit it on the head is that uh you know humans aren't closed systems like a bomb calorimeter so we're, we're we're an open you know we're not a closed energy system we're an open energy system right so so you can't account for uh differences in efficiency Right. Uh, you can't measure that, uh, right. like you said, in a snapshot of time. And that's so what that, I think sometimes you'll see yeah. trainers or dietitians make a mistake and they'll do their Harris-Benedict equation. And that doesn't t- that takes into account age, height, and weight. But it doesn't take into account things like, you know, oh, uh, you know, thyroid levels going up and down. Or, you know, you're talking about adipokines like, you know, adiponectin, you know, or adiponectin or however you want to pronounce that is, and, you know, how it's inversely related to body fatness, whether it's because of anti-inflammatory effects or insulin sensitivity or whatever. So, yeah, all these systems are going up and down like like the bars on a stereo uh, equalizer. You know what That's I mean? Very good. Yeah, very good. You're right. They're, they, they are doing that, and, and they're doing that uh, daily. And so everything that we eat or don't eat and and uh, the physical activity that we undertake or don't undertake, it, it affects that that muscle fat crosstalk. You know, the 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 uh, the, uh, the chemical communication between those uh, tissues in a way that either promotes fat oxidation or fat storage, and uh, and that's where some of these, you know, whether they're unique fatty acids or, or indigo 3G or whatever. Um, and you hit it. Uh, um, adiponectin is probably the the main target right now. In terms, clinically, in terms of you know finding things to increase that uh, the secretion of that hormone from fat cells, because that seems to be one of the keys relative to losing not just losing body weight and body fat, but also uh, reducing inflammatory responses and uh, you know the risk of metabolic syndrome. There you go, you said it right, and I think that's the common link, uh, possibly as a mechanism between some of these um, plant chemicals 
like the anthocyanins and things like fish oils is it's that anti-inflammatory effect, I think, that may, I, I know there's insulin sensitivity and there's other things at work here. You know what I mean? Like you said, lots of crosstalk on a hormonal level across the body or even paracrine within a tissue, you know, cells talking to neighboring cells. But I think there's something inflammatory there. And listeners are probably familiar, but, you know, obesity is an inflammatory disease. Diabetes right. is an inflammatory, cardiovascular, inflammatory. And I think when you, when you can kind of suppress that in our high-carb, you know, world – uh, that is sort of pro-inflammatory, high omega-6 fats, high carbohydrates. I don't think people, our bodies are really digging that. And so if you can do something to sort of suppress that inflammation, whether it's through, uh, you know, anthocyanin type things or, or omega-3 fats or whatever, you're going to be leaner over time. You're not just going to have less heart disease risk or diabetes risk. You're going to be leaner, right? I mean. That's right, right. And, the, and one of the things that happens to fat cells, um, is that they become, when they, when they first become sick, what happens is, there's macrophage infiltration. So those macrophages infiltrate the fat cells, and that causes the release of a host of, uh, um, of inflammatory chemicals, inflammatory uh, hormones. Um, I mean, fat cells that, are not, that do not have uh, macrophage infiltration seem to work just fine. They work just fine. But, uh, so maybe that's the reason why when you're younger and you can, get away with, you can get away with doing lots of things wrong, eating whatever you want, not really training a lot, and so on and so on, because it takes some time for you to make your fat cells sick to get that macrophage infiltration because once that happens then it's a sort of a um, it's a vicious cycle between inflammation fat cells that are that, that have macrophage infiltration it activates uh, you know TNF alpha which causes more uh, monocytes and macrophages to infiltrate even more fat cells and it just is a, it's a positive feedback loop so bad stuff yeah right just to sort of you know clue in everybody so what Dr. Z is talking about is, you know, leukocytes of different kinds. You've got different kinds of white blood cells. These are soldiers, right? They have, uh, they'll secrete bleach-like substances, oxidants, all very harsh things, uh, inflammatory mediators, because they are meant to attack and kill viruses and bacteria and things like that. And, like, we were joking with Phil earlier about how sore his legs are. That's partly because... They're also part of muscle remodeling. You know, you trash your legs with 21 sets of squats or something crazy like Phil is doing. And those white blood cells, they will infiltrate that muscle tissue. And now the good news is those soldiers eventually become medics and they start secreting growth factors and things like that. But that's in muscle remodeling. So what Dr. Z is talking about is you've got these soldiers get into your body fat because um, they can leave your bloodstream. A monocyte will become a macrophage. It'll hang out for an extended period of time outside of your bloodstream. And, you know, these are like the Pac-Man munching um, inflammatory kinds of things that I don't think you want running wild on your um, body fat, you know. so That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, it's an amazing uh, system. And, uh, you know, the inflammation in response to, let's say, um, tissue injury, like you sprain your ankle, is similar to, but not the same as, the inflammation that you get from, you know, uh, 21 sets of squats or any, you know, exercise-induced inflammation. There, there, there are slight differences, as you know, Lonnie, mm-hmm. in the not, not not just the time course, but also the re- the, the release of those, the that inflammatory cascade, and th- that's sort that's the you know the the key there is to try to figure out how to how to mitigate and get that, well, I, I, you and I would like to call it, I think we did in the past, optimal levels of muscle soreness. Because if you're so sore that you can't train and it impedes your recovery, I'm not sure that's very useful. Or if you're so sore you can't even bend your leg. Hey. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Inside jokes. All right, yeah. well, yeah. 
Totally. Okay. Phil, how are we on time? Um, not bad. What are we at? We're at 35.58. Oh, sweet. Okay. So, all right. So, again, if, if you're just tuning in, we're, we're talking to Tim Ziegenfuss about uh, different dietary supplement or nutritional approaches to inflammation and how it can be a bad guy. I guess we should point out, too, some aspects of inflammation can be a good thing. You know, prostaglandin E2 may be part of the protein sure. synthetic response. I mean, when we, we had... Um, uh, somebody from Stu Phillips' lab on before, Nick Bird, and he was actually talking about how ibuprofen suppresses prostaglandin E2, which, by the way, that's that's what causes inflammation, right? You take aspirin to block that stuff, and uh, omega-3 fats may block it, but he was talking about how ibuprofen can block that, uh, and that actually suppresses protein synthesis, but once the ibuprofen gets out of your system, all those enzymes rebound and you actually end up with an anabolic effect. And he was talking about right. ibuprofen as a mild anabolic. So, yeah, the immune system and inflammation is way more important than a lot of, I think, bodybuilders and strength athletes have given it credit for in the past. You know, they tend to think, oh, it's, you know, growth hormone and testosterone cause muscle growth or something, you know, a little bit more simple. And maybe poo-pooing the role of the immune system, whereas it's underlying a lot of these effects. So... You know, lots to con- consider here. So, yeah, agreed. Good stuff. Good stuff. Now, I and I, I don't think ibuprofen would be on my top five, you know, supplement list. But I, mm, but I, yeah. but I do know, I do know. And actually, I don't use a lot of ibu. Uh, I, I tend to use like things like curcumin, which is a selected COX inhibitor, rather than some of those NSAIDs that you know are non-selected COX inhibitors, just for my own risk of because uh, I sort of genetically sort of predisposed toward cardiovascular issues. Uh, you know, both gram. Both grandpas, you know, died, kicked off early, and my dad has been on blood pressure medicine most of his life and all that. So I'm, I'm sort of careful with what I use to treat my inflammation. And I, and I don't really use ibuprofen, but I'm glad you brought that up because for a lot of, for, for a while there, some, a lot of the fitness mags and rags were running with, oh, don't use ibuprofen, it will impair your, uh, you know, your strength gain, your size gains. And that's just nonsense because there was, there were a couple of, handful of really well done studies that followed up and did training that, uh, you know, that, Used, I think, prophylact both pre and post doses of, of ibuprofen at a, at a fairly high, of, you know, 600 megs or 800 megs of crack, and didn't show any attenuate, no no reductions in muscle growth or strength gains right. from training. And that's good news for young guys who are training hard and sore all the time or inflamed, or older guys, right? I, I love to hear when Nick was saying, "Oh yeah, ibuprofen, that's all right." I actually do use some ibuprofen, and you know, yeah. so then it, it makes your joints behave. <laughs> but, well, I mean. I was just going to say, I mean, internally being, you know, me as a strength athlete and, and having the luxury to have been around, you know, many of the strongest people in the world when all that was coming out, um, in the inside groups it was a big laugh because, you know, 99% of these guys are, are taking a lot of ibuprofen on a very regular basis. And, you know, it just doesn't pan out, you know, that that it was it was stopping strength and stopping muscle growth. I mean, right. right. It's if, like if you, <laughs> It's just like what we were saying with, with uh, you know, metabolic rate and trying to figure out calorie balance and things yeah. like that. You look at a snapshot in time, yeah, you got some temporarily suppressed protein synthesis. But then when it kicks back up in spades afterwards, you know, there's no net loss there. So, yeah, I think sometimes we've got to be careful over-concluding like that. You look at the big picture. And like you said, just right from the meathead approach. Yeah. Nobody's smaller exactly. when they're taking ibuprofen. Exactly. I mean, and what's worse, I mean... To, to take a little ibuprofen to stop that little bit of pain that's hindering your training, or, or don't take it and never train. Right. You know, I mean, yeah. right. 
And Lonnie, what would you say? What would you say is a good dose, and how often for somebody who's a, a large, hard-training strength athlete? Well, that's a good question. Well, first of all, let me say something about what what Tim was saying a minute ago. When Tim keeps saying Cox, he's not being vulgar. <laughs> Lord no. He's saying he's saying cyclooxygenase. It's an enzyme that you know creates prostaglandins. And for example, when people take fish oils. Uh, they'll compete for this enzyme and they'll make less inflammatory prostaglandins. Or like I said, people take aspirin to block, um, you know, the creation of certain prostaglandins. But that, to what you're saying, Rob, that's actually a very good question. I, that just came up in the gym the other day. Is you know the anti the analgesic, you know, the anti-pain dose of of something like ibuprofen is usually like you know two tablets, like 400 milligrams. But the anti-inflammatory dose, and I know Tim, like back in grad school, you do this kind of stuff. It's much higher. It's you know 800 milligrams. I'm not telling people to go do this. Uh, and I think Tim's you know really zeroing in on there's different without going into gory detail. Cyclooxygenase, that COX or COX enzyme, it's not just one enzyme. There's actually slightly different versions of that, and there's there's different ways to manipulate it. But the point being is, yeah, I think he's going for something very targeted and specific. The point being is that, uh, yeah, like uh, it's a larger dose, Rob. It's like it's more like an 800 milligram dose for anti-inflammatory effects. And I think most right. listeners probably know, of course, the trainers and some of the the guys that I met out in Vegas who who listen to the show, they know this, but. You don't want to overdo NSAID, you know, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen or aspirin all the time um, because, you know, you're, you're talking about, you know, ulcer risk. You don't want some kind of gastric or duodenal ulcer or something like that. But anyway, so and, and I think that's probably maybe another reason why, Tim, you're probably trying to manipulate um, phytochemicals instead, right? Or Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, actually, and I had some blood work done uh you know, an ALCAT, an ALCAT test, which is a food sensitivity. Lonnie, I know you know all about it. It's a food sensitivity test for your listeners, uh, which basically they take some microliter samples of your blood and they incubate it with, you know, 100, 200, 300 different types of foods, most of which you would probably never eat anyway, but also with uh, certain uh, over-the-counter uh, meds, so like ibuprofen and, uh, uh, and aspirin, Tylenol, um, also with uh, food colorings and food preservatives, and they basically look for a, uh, an inflammatory response in the, in the dish, in, uh, in vitro. And then uh, the sort of a step is made that says, hey, if, if, you're, if it's pro-inflammatory here, it potentially could be pro-inflammatory in, in, within your body. So uh, what the company does then is puts together sort of a, uh, a traffic light system, or you know, green light, yellow light, red light. It's not quite like that, but that's how we, we explain it to our clients. And the, uh, you know, the red light foods and also OTCs, are, you know, stay away from these as much as you can. And it just so happens that for me, IBU is on my red list as one of the things that I should stay away from. But interestingly enough, so is whey protein. Not casein, but whey. Interesting. Very, very interesting. So, uh, yeah, but uh, that's why I've gone to look toward other, you know, because I was always a, an ibuprofen guy versus a Tylenol guy. Why? Because I figured my kidneys were a little bit stronger than my liver. So, uh, you know, ibuprofen is tends to be filtered more through renal uh, means but uh, Tylenol is wicked, horrible on your on your on your liver. No, you know what? So, and it's uh, funny too, listeners. That's why I hope I hope you understand. We have some of these guys come on the show, experts come on the show. I mean, Tim and I were talking about you know the toxicity of Tylenol. I don't know 
uh, two decades ago. You know, yeah. uh, the research was really clear. And I don't think they came out with the stronger warnings on Tylenol bottles about how renal toxic that stuff is and just toxic in general. I mean, God, they use that in lab studies, you know, rodent studies to purposely toxify the animals. So, And when you add on top of that that it's not even anti-inflammatory, it's just more analgesic or antipyretic, you know, keep your fever down. Damn, you know. So yeah, I'm not a big fan of Tylenol for well, anything. Well, prior, yeah, prior to running that blood work, though, I had used, you know, Ibu was my uh, my anti-inflammatory of choice. And uh, as you know, if you go to the dentist and you have some work done, and you're in pain and your gums are inflamed or whatever, you, the dose that they'll give you is 600, usually 600 milligrams, sometimes 800, right? Yeah. So at that dose, at six to 800, you get a combination of uh, anti-inflammatory and some analgesic effects. So at high doses, you know, Ibu can also be an analgesic. So uh, that w- was my uh, OTC of choice uh, until I had some of this blood work done. Now I use it, but not nearly as much as I as I did before because I use uh, curcumin. You know the you know curcuminoids from turmeric, so from yellow mustard, and that's quite good uh, and very and it has a number of other health benefits that uh, obviously ibuprofen or any other NSAID does not have. What's how how good is the uh, the pain blocking effect of that then? It's great. It's great, but you have to get up. In my opinion, you know, in my uh, experience, for me, I have to get up around you know two grams a day or so. To, to, and they usually come in 500 milligram, uh, you know, capsules or so. So if I take, if I'm really hurting, like if I if I pull a trap or a rhomboid or my lower back, I have to chew on four of those every four hours or so. Then I'm okay. Then I'm okay. Okay. Just, any like concerns? Those, Do you ever have any concerns with overdoing the inflammation suppression? With, with oh, you? sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think you know you got to walk the walk the razor's edge a little bit, right? Because you don't want to, like you said earlier, like you uh, you know you, there's if you quell if you put a, a blanket on it too much, then you you know you're shut, shutting down uh, potential gains. I think in terms of uh, you know in terms of and, and the positive signals that the body needs to heal itself more quickly. So you could you know you could just, sort of like taking an antihistamine when you have a cold. You feel better, but you're going to have a cold for longer. You know, do you, want to, do you want to be miserable for a couple of days, or do you want to feel good but have a cold for two weeks? Uh, that's the way I look at antihistamines and uh, cold medicines. Yeah. So. Yeah, I once had a health teacher who he actually used to say, you know, that he, he wouldn't take anything to mask the symptoms of a cold um, because he was, you know, and again, just almost like a just a lay, you know, high school health educator kind of approach, but... And he would, you know, he'd purposely suffer through colds because he felt like if he blocked the symptoms, then he would... Uh, you know, just have to suffer with it longer, you know, kind of thing. But sure, yeah. Uh, so okay, so we talked a little bit about adipokines and inflammation and that kind of stuff. I think that's that's good education for everybody. Uh, so you already shared a couple of things that you're doing. So maybe just tell everybody, since you're a, you know sort of a nutritional supplement expert, what what's in your cupboard then? I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, my cupboard space it used to be you know one shelf. And now it's the whole damn cupboard because I find myself trying, uh, not that I take all that stuff, but I find myself trying this little bit of this, a little bit of that, you know, I have newt and so on and so on. Uh, but uh, my go-to things on a daily basis are um, obviously a fish oil supplement because I just don't get fatty fish twice a week like I should. Mm-hmm. Um, creatine, um, some branch chains or leucine. If, if it's against the backdrop of a normal meal, I'll take extra, I'll spike a meal with leucine if I need to. Um, and then, uh, obviously, my, my whey, which sometimes is a blend. I mean, luck, luckily for me, um, Biotest is, uh, is gracious enough to send me, you know, a monthly sort of care package. So, um, and I think they have the best stuff in the industry, uh, not just because, uh, you know, I work for them, but I think that's 
I think that's true. Um, so I have, you know, my, my whey and casein hydrolysate, uh, or casein hydrolysate blend, mag-10, I think is a great one. But uh, I also have vitamin D and probiotics, which I, n- I didn't have until very recently. And I think that's probably going to be um, uh, for the industry if it's done properly. Well, with one, with one other exception, I'll give you one, I'll give you one too. For strength and power, since that's what you guys are all into, have you guys discussed uh, betaine or betaine um, at all on the show? No, huh? Yeah. So, so, so betaine, as you know, um, is a is a vitamin, right? It's a vitamin-like compound. Um, but there's been some research done by pretty, you know, hardcore labs. Um, we're talking uh, Jay Hoffman, and we're talking Bill Kramer, and Jeff Volick, um, and uh, and I think a third. And it's and, and, and in general, it's all uh, been positive relative to um, you know you guys know betaine probably by TMG. Very TMG, right? Trimethylglycine, same thing. Uh, it's, it's, it's a methyl donor, but and scientists don't know why, but they know that it increases um, strength and power production. Uh, and I can't believe you guys are silent on this one because um, I think <laughs> I think this is one. This honestly, honestly, in my opinion, this could be. Uh, we've heard it before, but you know, beta alanine is it the next creatine? All that stuff. No, why? Because you got to take it for at least 30 days three or four times a day, uh, religiously, before you get any benefit at all. And if you don't train really hard, there's going to be no benefit. But this, betaine, is different because it's about a two and a half gram a day dose. It's cheap, and it will improve in probably in 10 days. It will improve your strength and power in the gym. It's, uh, it, 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 if the right company gets a hold of it, um, and I'm working hopefully with Biotest to put, to put something out like this. I hope I didn't let the cat out of the bag and get myself in trouble, but... Someone's going to run with this, and they're going to make a whole lot of dough. Uh, betaine is a very, very, very high on my list in terms of uh, supplements. So I'm, uh, I'm playing around with betaine. But, yeah, creatine, you can't beat it. Branch chains, high in leucine, fish oil, you know, my, my, of course, my whey protein slash casein hydrolysate and my vitamin D and, and probiotics. That's what's in my cupboard. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Did, did you mention, I hear you say a few minutes ago, and I gotta, I'm trying to do too many things at once here. Uh, did you mention... Um, like probiotic type stuff at all? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Probiotics are also big. Uh, uh, and the problem with those is that, you know, in, in Europe, um, I actually just got back from Amsterdam. Uh, I was invited to speak at a sports nutrition conference there about a month and a half ago. And uh, they're huge over there. I mean, probiotic uh, fortified foods uh, are big. And as a supplement, I think they're, they have a lot, there's some traction there. In the U.S., not so much. Yeah, uh, you know what? Much. Let me just share something with, with listeners a little bit. First of all, the, the latest issue of uh, the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, which is my favorite journal I've talked about before, but there's actually a couple of articles and editorials in there about energy balance studies and how they show associations between gut microbes and, you know, gut caloric load and energy balance. I, um, so, yeah, that's in the July 2011, so that's spanking new. But a, a couple of years ago, I had a grad student very interested in pre- and probiotics and uh, we are looking at some fascinating research where they took animals and believe it or not, they put they like they took some rodents, they put them on a fat, fast food diet, and then they took some rodents, they put them on what they considered a healthier diet. And what they did was they took the microbes out of the intestine, out of the gut of the junk food rats, and put it in the lean rats, and they became fat. And wow, you know, so this is yet another link that I think... It is a wow. It, it is a wow. It's a, it's a definite wow because in the past, and I don't, mean to, I don't mean to interrupt you, but it's, it's exciting for me because uh, it used to be that, you know, if you knew anything about probiotics, all you knew was 
you should take probiotics after you're on a course of antibiotics because, you know, antibiotics kill everything non-discriminately in your gut. Sure. So, yep. uh, right, so now a lot of doctors that are with it, they'll go, you know, they'll tell their patients, hey, listen, I'm going to put you on, you know, amoxicillin or whatever for, you know, for a week or 10 days. Make sure you follow it up with a course of uh, probiotics afterwards. Uh, but now we're finding that those, uh, those, those flora, you know, the beneficial microbes in the gut are responsible not just for immune function, but for a host of, I mean, a, uh, you know, obesity, uh, energy, uh, um, uh, appetite, um, they're, they're, and, and on and on and on. And, and part the, the, one of the problems is, though, is, you know, the, the, there's so many different types of strains. Where do you, what, what kind do you, uh, you know, what kind do you uh, take? What's the dose? Are they live cultures? Because if they sit on the shelf for too long, uh, then uh, then they're no good anymore. So there are very, in my opinion, there are, there are only a handful of, you know, really good uh, research-proven probiotics and probiotic strains and companies out there that, uh, that are worth uh, looking into. Um, but, uh, and it could be that some autoimmune diseases, actually, are as a result of altering the normal flora of the gut. Yeah. Uh, you in know what? Negative, in a negative way. To give and people so, an idea, if you want to take a peek behind what's happening in the ivory tower, um, there was a philosophy professor uh, that I was reviewing. Somebody, I was on a research committee, and he was actually getting a grant to study human beings as a biome, right? As a as like think Osmosis Jones, like a city of living things. You know, so it's a weird concept, but if you think you're just one organism, you're not. You're a collection of things working together, hopefully in harmony, but not always in harmony. You know, and right. I think the bacteria that's, if you think about your gut, it's external, right? It's not like your bloodstream that's closed to the environment. You've got openings on both ends. So that's, Absolutely. in a sense, external, and it's a dark, moist, perfect environment for bacteria so, yeah, I really think we're coming to grips with, especially the links with obesity and the kinds of um, population that lives in our bodily cities. You know, Well, minim minimally, people with, uh, obviously, irritable, any kind of irritable bowel or similar digestive issues need to look into a, a good uh, probiotic because the lactobacillus strain is the, one, is the one that's probably the most well-studied. It absolutely reduces the incidence and severity of, uh, you know, irritable bowel, diarrhea, and so on. So that's... Uh, that's one to look for um, because that, you know, tends to sort of sneak up on you at times when you're not really, you know, you're on an air, you're on a flight to Vegas, all of a sudden, you know, your, <laughs> your meal doesn't agree with you or you're all of a sudden you find yourself sick or getting sick. It's not a good thing. So right, yeah. Yeah. definitely look into, I think, the probiotics and the vitamin D, just to touch on that, you know, very briefly as a secosteroid, you know, I am just amazed that, you know, well, maybe I'm not. After telling people for years, don't go out in the sun, you know, you need to put your suntan lotion on your sunscreen on half hour before you go out in the sun oh my god it's going to give you skin cancer and on and on and on I know, and on spf and on. 99 yeah you uh, it's just you know go out with your so snowsuit on and you know it's just ridiculous and so what we're seeing is a is a mat the vitamin d for listeners that are interested the vitamin d council i think you know there's certainly pro vitamin d obviously by their name but i think they're they do it in a responsible and fairly objective way you would be spend a half an hour on that website and it's just eye-opening with the incidence of not just uh, suboptimal vitamin D levels, but clinically deficient vitamin D levels. And, you know, Lonnie, you're not surprised, but I tested myself, my wife, and all three of my boys, not the young girls yet. They're, you know, they're, they're little. But, and um, um, two out of three of my boys were clinically deficient, 
clinically to fit. Meanwhile, you've seen them. They look like they're from their. My wife is uh, her ancestry is from um, uh, from it from Sicily. So they get dark. I mean, half the time people don't even think they're my kids. I mean, dark, dark. And uh, only one of my boys sort of has my skin tone. But as you can, those UV rays penetrate less deeply into the skin, and so you actually make less vitamin D when you can, which explains why the incidence of um, uh, hypo uh, uh, vitamin D levels and you know clinically deficient uh, vitamin D levels in in darker skinned races um, is so prevalent. Um, and in fact, you bet. Um, even cancer, I've 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 seen some researchers kind of speculating, right? Like yep. why why African Americans uh, right. often, you know, yeah, cancer is more devastating. Uh, and you could now there could be socioeconomic issues and equality issues and stuff. Okay, but at the same yep. time, I think there's also biology at work there because if they have less vitamin D because of the dark skin and they're living somewhere like I don't know Minnesota, then yep. you know, in fact, anywhere north of Atlanta. I was just going to say that. Yep, you get no vitamin D in the winter. Your body makes no vitamin D because they stuck a bunch of grad students on the roof of the buildings in the winter and said, and they measured it. And uh, you're not making any vitamin D in the winter, even if you get out in the sun. Even if you're on the ski slopes, you're not making any vitamin D. It's incredible. And remember, vitamin D is not just for strong bones. You can't just shrug it off and say, oh, you know, my bones are strong enough. I lift weights. It's not it. Vitamin D controls immune function. If there's any one time that your vitamin D levels in the target zone, it's just prior to cold and flu season. And the oh, problem yeah. with getting vitamin D into the target zone, you know, into the target range, is that it takes a few months, and you need to be able to monitor where you're at. You know, as a, as, you know, it's certainly not a toxic, as one of the fat-soluble vitamins, it's probably the least, well, it is, the least toxic of all fat-soluble vitamins. And I found myself, you wouldn't believe the doses that I had to take to get myself into the the ideal range. It was just ridiculous. I'm going to make two quick um, comments here before we wind up. But um, one is everybody, and a lot of people realize vitamin D is not just a vitamin, it's a hormone. So you do have to be sort of cautious. Um, In one perspective, like I'll I'll give you an example. I didn't even do the blood work, but basically in December and January every year, my wife, my son, and I will all, you know, take, you know, I don't know, like 3,000 IUs of vitamin D a day. Um, now, you realize you should be doing that in September and October. Yeah, I know. I know. But well, there, there's plus. partly a reason for me is, this is what I was going to say, is um, it can be overdone in some people. Um, like, for example, yeah. I, I broke my little finger repeatedly when I was little, and um, now I've got a calcium deposit there now i i can't say for sure 100 percent that it was because of the high vitamin d because i did 5,000 iu uh capsules for basically a two-month period i'm just i'm just saying people really go get your blood levels checked because it yeah i is, think that's the responsible way to do it yeah it is possible to overdo it even though it's not highly toxic you don't want calcium deposits in your soft tissues or like i said mm-hmm. sites of former fracture i think that's exactly what why i've got this you know i always joke about phil being held together with bone spurs and scar tissue but <laughs> i i'm in the same boat there i got to be sort of careful so if you have prior breaks or that kind of thing you know that may be a site of uh you know calcium deposits i'm not saying that's going to happen with everybody the other thing is um if, if any of our listeners, guys who are very high testosterone for whatever reason, that's going to block an enzyme, uh, 24-hydroxylase, which helps you know control vitamin D levels in the body, active vitamin D. And so you can overdose on D faster 
if you're a very high T kind of dude. So just something to think about. But anyway, my T must be in the basement then. No, I know what my levels are. <laughs> but for me, yeah, there must be some. There's probably some uh, differences. You know, some polymorphisms going on at the receptor level with that. With that, I'm, I'm thinking so. That, yeah, but yeah, I mean, just so people have an idea that you know, it's a hormone as well as a vitamin. But it's true. Yep. The way yep. they taught us about fat soluble vitamins being all in sort of the same ballpark, like in school, that's really changed. You know, be careful with the fat solubles because you know they can be toxic and this and that. And yeah. and vitamin D doesn't seem to fall into the category. Well, if it you did, know, if it did, then then everybody who is out in the sun in the in the summertime every day or every other day for like four hours at a pop would be yeah. would have it would be absolutely vitamin d toxic but it oh well now vitamin. yeah but i mean i think everybody knows that you know the body's regulatory mechanisms when it comes to the sun is is a little bit different from taking large amounts of, of just oral d but yeah. no point well taken is you know there's lots of people supplementing for that matter uh right. and, you know and they're not all had they're all not all getting calcium deposits and, and things like that so sure yeah, and vitamin D, actually, there was just a paper published, uh, I think this week, or well, I saw it on actually the ISSN, uh, and i got to give a, a shout-out for the International Society of Sports Nutrition um, uh, because they it's a great organization if you're interested in uh, in sports nutrition and sports supplements and, and specific recommendations. You know, scientists who aren't afraid to recommend supplements, uh, whether they work or not, I mean, uh, we'll give the honest shake. You know, Google ISSN, they're, they're very good. But anyway, there was a, there was a listing in the ISSN um, uh, in the listserv on the interaction, I think it was a FASTSEB paper, on the interaction between uh, vitamin D and the uh, androgen receptor and nandrolone. So they had co-administered vitamin D, I think, and nandrolone, and they found some incredible increase in androgen receptor content. It's worth looking into. Interesting. So, um, yeah, yeah, very, very, very interesting. So Yeah, and um, definitely, it's to me, it's like one of those things like, uh, like fish oils. You're going to see such pluripotent effects because... It's a deficiency. We're actually replacing a deficiency with some of these. There's things. no doubt, and and you know I won't get myself in trouble saying this, but many physicians, of which I'm not, obviously, but are uh, one of the first things they do when when they have a uh, breast cancer patient, a, a, a patient who pops up with breast cancer, is they very closely monitor and optimize their vitamin D levels because the survival rate of women who have uh, target levels of 25-hydroxy uh, vitamin D. Um, is much better than uh, women who have suboptimal levels of vitamin D in the blood. You bet. In fact, I know it's not cause and effect, but I read uh, similarly an uh, epidemiological paper, 74% of women with breast cancer are D deficient. So, again, not cause and effect, but right. suspicious. Not, not, right, right, yeah. exactly. All right, I think we're out of time. So I uh, just want to thanks Tim, for being on, uh, on the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It was a good time. Whether we're talking about, you know, blueberries or, I don't know, curry powder or whatever it is we're talking about, and <laughs> even in even in extract form, uh, you know, obviously you're going to get uh, stronger uh, doses, and that's where dietary supplements, I think they're going to get more and more of a of a shake. You know, you were saying why you haven't we talked about, you know, betaine or betaine or however you pronounce it yep. on the show. Yep. We don't talk about a lot of different um, extracts and things like that, you know, so... Uh, that's one. That's one. In closing, I think betaine or betaine is one of those that uh, uh, I think we'll find that the RDI will be changed and it will swing upward by maybe a factor of uh, by a, by a large factor. And so we'll see that for optimal health, people are not getting nearly the amount of betaine that they should. And mm -hmm. that's probably why, as you know, when you replace a deficiency, you see improvements in performance. And I think that's probably what we're seeing in these early research studies in uh, with strength and power. Right. So cool stuff.
Okay. Well, thanks again for being on. Let's Robin, talk about Phil's. Let's talk about Phil's iced tea piss. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you got anything for that, Tim? Anything Phil can take to get rid of this uh, oh, brown man. urine? <laughs> maple syrup, rhabdo. Um, yeah. I, no, no, the damage is done, man. I just uh, yeah, be careful. The damage is done. I'm just looking forward to walking again. So. <laughs> it's actually, you okay. know what? It, this is sick, but I'm actually that's sort of um, exciting to be. It's been so long since my legs were so sore. I needed a handrail to get up the stairs. I might have to go indulge. <laughs> well, the hard part is it's going down. The worst one. I have no control over the the. Eccentric of the movement, I just yeah, fall. Yeah, when they give out, yeah. Yeah. That's why Rob was joking about when you sit down on the pot, you grab a handrail like an old lady or something. <laughs> oh, that's rough. Well, All right. Good luck. Good luck. I hope you. Feel, I hope it works out. I'm sure it will. Oh, Thank you. All right. Take care, everybody. Later. Thank you. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store uh, we also are accepting supporting members so for four dollars a month which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community the Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.